This morning we're in 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 through 14, or sorry, 11 through 24. And then once you get there, I'm going to start reading here. Verse 11, for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth, and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God, and whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him, and by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given to us. Let's pray together. God, this morning uh, we come to you humbly asking that you would uh, speak to us, that we would hear what it is that we need to hear, and that you'd grant us the faith to believe what it is that we need to believe, what it is that maybe we're not believing. God, would you expose us and uh, encourage us, Lord, by the power of your spirit in our lives. It's just obvious that you're doing a good work in our hearts. I know you've been doing incredible work in mine, and often that's painful, but it's so good. And so we're so thankful, God, just for the work you're doing in our church this fall through this, through this book in the Bible. And we pray that that would continue this morning, Lord. Would you unify us as a community of faith? Would you shape us into people who love one another, Lord, as you've loved us? We pray that this morning would really contribute to that for the glory of Jesus here in our city his sake. Amen. Um, I love Calamity Janes. I was really sad to, to read it's closing or it's closed. It's too late for you if you're going to get out there someday. Uh, I also love soup. I love baseball. I love trees. Hey, I hear you. I love coffee. I love roasting coffee. I love uh, freshly mowed grass. I love music, I love the cello, I love the mountains, I love English culture, I love turkey, not so much the animal, but the country, I love Levi's, I love Sperry's shoes, I love my kids, I love my wife, I love sunny days, I love overcast days, I love eight ounce coffee mugs, and I love G2 ballpoint pens, I love Disneyland, and I love water parks. I love stories of hope. I love seeing people advocate and fight for the powerless. I love hoodies. 
I love books. I love nerds ropes. I love the 49ers. I love the Warriors and the Giants as as well. I love hot tubs and saunas. I love watching people come alive when they put their faith in Jesus. I love God's grace. I love the church. I love beaver basketball. And I love Jesus. So what in the world does love really mean? I mean, if you're anything like me, the word gets thrown around a lot. Uh, We use it in the same sentence where we describe the size of a coffee mug that we prefer all the way to the other end of the spectrum where we talk about our, our spouses and our Jesus, right? The only time I didn't throw it around was probably in my dating relationship with Elizabeth. I waited for like a year to tell her that I loved her, okay, Uh, when we were dating. And in a very real way, I knew that I loved her the moment that I saw her, okay? You can roll your eyes at that, whatever, that's fine, it's true, okay? And uh, I just didn't want to be flippant about the word, I wanted it to be like real and true, and I wanted it to mean something. So what I did is I took her on a date to San Diego to see one of our favorite bands, Nickel Creek, in concert at the House of Blues, and then after that, which is an amazing night, we, we went over to Coronado Island and we sat there and we looked at the skyline of San Diego and I looked at her and I said, Elizabeth, I love you. Like, I really love you. I just want you to know that. And she looked at me and she said, thanks. <laughs> Thank you. I was like, man, okay, all right. But I'll tell you something. I said those words, I love you, to her 14 years ago. And I meant them, and I felt them. But since that day, those words are actually defined by my life, and by my actions, and by my loyalty to her, right? If you haven't guessed yet, our passage this morning is about love, Uh, But our passage not only talks about love, it actually defines love, defines love. And it not only defines love, but it tells us that love should define us. It says that love should define us. Uh, These verses are sort of like a watershed moment, if you will, in in the letter of 1 John. It could almost be summed up in this way, like the first part of the letter that we've been walking through this fall could be summed up by saying, God is light. God is light. Uh, John has been very concerned primarily about truth and what it is, and then from this moment on, through the rest of the letter, it could almost be summed up by saying, God is love. And those aren't two different things. They're actually intimately tied to one another because we see from the rest of this point forward that God's love and love in our lives, God's love through us, is actually just truth in practice. That's what it is. It's, It's God's light made visible. And so if you're wanting to know what the structure is of our passage this morning, uh, this is what we see. We see the way of Cain in verses 11 through 15. We see the way of Jesus in verses 16 through 18. And we see then the way of Jesus' people, which is hopefully us in verses 19 through 24. Okay? So the way of Cain, verses 11 through 15. Uh, We saw this last week when we have... That we have been born again by the very will of God into a family. Remember, we saw that. We are children of God, and so it makes all the sense in the world for the author to lead us into seeing that if my relationship with God and my relationship with you is a family-like relationship, then I should love my family. 
And and verse 10 ends with this foreshadowing of where the author said it here. It says, whoever does not love his brother is not a child of God. Now, just to be really clear, when you see brother over and over in here, this isn't excluding women from the conversation. This is just a way of saying brothers and sisters. It's family language, okay? So it says, whoever does not love his brother is not a child of God. And so John begins here with this reminder. This is the message you've heard from the beginning, right? Verse 11, that we should love one another, right? This isn't new. You've heard it many times before. It's not like you're hearing that right now and you're like, oh, if only I would have known that. I would have been doing that, right? Thanks. Now, now I know, right? He said this is the same message. The game plan for what life really looks like and sounds like and smells like is it's still love, okay? And so what John is proceeding to do here in verses 12 through 15 is to actually give you a negative example of love. And what does he say? Don't be like Cain, don't be like Cain, which I doubt anyone right now is like, oh, it's so embarrassing. Like, I was wanting to be like Cain. Like, I didn't know that, you know? I, I doubt no one's doing I'm going to take a flying leap here and say the, the name Cain has never been on, like, baby name top list, you know, kind of things ever, right? Since, since the existence of baby name lists, I'm guessing. Why? Well, because of what happened in Genesis chapter 4. What happened? What does it say? Abel was a keeper of sheep. And Cain, his older brother, was a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. But God didn't leave him. The Lord comes to Cain and says, Why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? So we get a window into why he wasn't accepted, right? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to his brother Abel. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. All right, this is, this is not a good start uh, for families in the world, is it? I mean, this is the very first family, the very first parents, Adam and Eve, have two sons, Cain and Abel. These are the world's first brothers, right? The world's first siblings. The firstborn murders the secondborn. This is not a good start. So why did he murder him? Well, because verse 12 of 1 John tells you, right? He was of the evil one, murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. We saw this theme last week of evil deeds and righteous deeds and how's the, how those reveal what family you're born into, right? This is a continuity of what we looked at last week. So Abel was accepted, Cain was rejected, and Cain rose up and killed his brother. He sought to bring him down. Why? Because he was jealous. Right? Cain is, a, is actually a prototypical character in Jewish history, And that just became synonymous with wickedness. And you have people like Philo who repeatedly used Cain as a symbol of self-love. And he actually made him an illustration. The illustration was that the worse attacks, the better. This is what we see. So what's John's point? What's What's he doing here? John continues. He says, just as Cain hated his brother, what should you do? Well, don't be surprised that the world hates you. Uh, This is often what it's like for God's people. God's people are often hated by the world, just like how Abel was hated by Cain, okay? So do you really see the point here, okay? 
This is, first of all, this is not the point I'm about to tell you. The point isn't for us to read this and to feel victimized by the world. That's not why this is here for you. It's not for you to be like, yeah, that's right. I'm the hated one, okay? It's not really feeling bad for us or something. Just to be honest with you, John's not feeling bad. Why? Because he says, why are you surprised? You know? He's not feeling bad for us, so to speak. John's bringing this up to show you that you might feel like Abel in the eyes of the world, but the hatred you might receive is not validation for you to hate other people. Right? In other words, hatred of another, especially a brother or sister in Christ, is never validated. It's never excusable. It is, in fact, the way of Cain. That's what we're seeing here. Uh, This is really striking. Uh, This is meant to feel a bit as if someone walked up from behind you without you knowing it and threw an ice cube down your back a little bit, right? You're like, whoa, you know? John, in an analogous way, is equating Cain murdering his brother with those who hate their own brother or sister in Christ. He's like, that's like Cain. Just press in here, just press in here. Notice here what's being said to us. Verse 10, look at it. Whoever does not love his brother is not born of God. Verse 12, just like Cain didn't love his brother, but hated him, and his hatred led him to murder. Verse 15, therefore, anyone who hates his brother is a murderer like Cain. That's pretty striking. This is hard for us, I think, to get our minds around. I think it's because we rank our sins so much. There's like a tiered system in our minds in terms of severity. We don't really see the connection between the two things. And to top it off, we compare our actions to one another's actions. And so if you hear of someone who murders somebody else, you're like, I ain't doing that. But murder is birthed from hatred. Right? It's, it's not divorced from it. Murder is the fruit from the seed that is hatred. And God isn't merely after our behavior, you guys. He's after our hearts. See, hatred is uh, simply this, just in case you're like, well, I don't hate anybody. Hatred is simply an intense dislike or ill will towards somebody else. It's not being for someone else's good. It's being against them in such a way that you would celebrate, even if in a really quiet and internal way, if you were to hear of something bad that would befall them. You might hear of something bad that happens to somebody you dislike in a strong way, and your initial thought is, well, serves them right. You know, serves them right. They had it coming. You might not have administered the fruit of hatred, but you're really maybe grateful for the person who did. Right? We, you see, hatred and love, they are the gates that put you on different paths in life. They're leading you somewhere. It's not the same path. Right? It, it might look like a good and fine path to take it first, but it leads you into a grave. And that's what we see in verse 14. What does he say? Whoever does not love abides in death. Uh, we, we have so many uh, beautiful hiking trails living in the Pacific Northwest, uh, just going out in the gorge alone, right? You can find so many. Just imagine going to, to Multnomah Falls, and you know every time you're on a hiking trail of some sort, you always reach these points where there's a, like a fork, you know, and you can, you can go some other direction, and it'll say, this thing is this many miles this way, and you can kind of get off course all of a sudden and not go for the thing that you thought you wanted to go and see in the first place. Do you know what I'm talking about? There's forks and trails, that sort of thing. So it's kind of like this. 
It's as if you were hiking Multnomah Falls today and you saw a sign and it just said, this way leads to death, 2.3 miles or whatever, you know? And you're like, eh, let's just see what it's like, you know? Let's just dabble on the trail for a little bit. It might feel worthy, it might feel good for a while, it might be scenic, but you've just tricked yourself into thinking that this is a path that leads to life and you've forgotten you're being told, nope, never leads you there. You might even convince yourself that this is a shortcut to the falls. It's just, it's not, right? You're making a big mistake, a grave mistake. John says, whoever does not love abides in death, verse 14. The way that you are on is not leading you to life. It's just not. If there's a hatred in your heart, if there is a hate that you're holding on to, that you're even comfortable with, especially a hatred towards another believer, you're on a path and it's the way of Cain, right? But, th- but there's another way that actually leads you to the falls, if you will, and that's what we see next. It's the way of Jesus in verses 16 through 18. It says, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So if the way of Cain is to take the life of another, the way of Jesus cannot be any more different than that. Right? Because Jesus didn't take life, did he? What did he do? He laid his own down. It's polar opposite. Did you notice here that we see the definition for love in the eyes of God? What does it say? By this we know love. We know it. What do we know of love? What is love? How do we know love? What does it say? Jesus laid his life down. He died. He didn't kill. He died. And no one took it from him. He's not like even like Abel. He's a better Abel in a way. He laid it down, didn't he? He willingly laid his life down. This is, this is the way of Jesus. It's the, it's the way of love here. But don't miss this. Who did he lay his life down for? Verse 16. Who did he lay his life down for? Us. That would be you, right? If you know Jesus, that would be me. He's not merely an example. He's loved me. I mean, maybe you're here this morning and you're struggling. Um, I can resonate with this. That's why I often think of it. Maybe you're struggling to believe God loves you. Well, look no further. Maybe you just need to hear this morning someone say, God loves you. God loves you. Jesus has loved you greater than any other person can love you in ways that you can't fathom, in ways that you can't imagine. The love you're searching for in this world is is found here in this verse. If you don't believe me, look at the cross because that's what it's talking about. This is why Spurgeon said, Dear brother, dear sister, you have never yet had half an idea or the tithe of an idea of how precious you are to Christ. You have not any notion how much God loves you. You know, I'm uh, convinced 
that if you're a Christian this morning, this is your primary job. It's to remain in how God feels about you, not how you feel about God. It's to fight to uh, abide here. That's why the Bible consistently calls you back to abide in God's love. It's not saying you fight to love. It's saying, no, be reminded, abide in God's love for you, right? That's why it starts here, but then where does the verse lead you? What does it say? And so what? We also ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. You begin there. And then naturally it flows to what? Well, we lay our lives down then. Knowing and experiencing Jesus' love leads us to love like Jesus, right? We are loved by Jesus to love like Jesus. That's what we find here in this one verse. And so, this is it. If the way of the cross is the ultimate definition of love, then the path for us is self-giving, selfless kind of love. It's I'll lose so that you can win kind of love. It's me dying so that you can live kind of love. And the gospel teaches you something about that kind of dying. It teaches you that that sort of dying, that kind of death to self-love is not the end for you. It's actually the beginning. It's the way to begin to live. It feels so hard and so painful, and we think that's the end. This is the end of me. No, it's actually the beginning because verse 14 says what? That we've passed into life when we love in this way. It's not the end, it's the beginning. But if you choose to hold on to the hatred and not die to self to begin living, you're actually abiding in death. So in just in case we're tempted to interpret this death to self kind of way of loving any way that we want to, it's actually spelled out for us here in verses 17 through 18. And if we could sum it up, it just basically says you, don't, you can't buy into this notion that love is just talk, right? Don't, don't we trick ourselves into settling for the talk, though? I know I, I know I do. But do you see? Our love for one another is the indicator that God's love is actually experienced by us, and it's proof that we actually love God. Because verse 17 says, if anyone has the world's goods, so if you have them, and you see your brother in need, yet you close your heart against him, the question is raised, how does God's love abide in me? How are we to know if we love God? Well, we know by how we love God's family in real and practical ways. We can't separate Jesus, who's the head of the body, from the body. We can't separate the head of the church from the church, right? Love in principle works itself out in love and practice. I could put it to you this way. Um, I'm the world's worst hunter, okay? And um, I debated over this. I'm about to lose a point on my man card. Okay, it's fine. If I even had a card, all right? Um, but I think it's worth it. Okay, I was, I was raised in Montana. My dad didn't hunt. My dad's dad didn't hunt. My mom's dad didn't hunt. So I, I didn't hunt. Okay, that was my life. But once, my pastor took me hunting. Okay, we went hunting. And we hiked around in the mountains. And I realized I am the worst hunter in the world because the entire time we were hunting, I was hoping that we didn't see a deer. Okay. <laughs> Uh, I can't really say I went hunting 
because I didn't hunt. We never saw a deer. But let's just say we saw a deer. And I go back to my friends and like, well, what did you do this weekend? And I said, well, I went hunting. And they're like, well, did you see a deer? And I said, yeah, but I just, I didn't want to kill it, you know? And uh, I didn't want to drag it out of there. And I don't even really like deer meat all that much. And so I didn't do it. My friends would say to me, you didn't hunt, you went hiking, right? You went hiking. Because to hunt, in order for me to say I went hunting, I have to hunt, right? I have to want to kill something, you know? That's what it means to hunt. You can't just say you love. You show you do love by loving. It's not the thought that counts. Believe it or not. I came across this poem this week by Steve Turner. He's like a Christian poet, apparently. And he's referring to that parable that Jesus famously tells at the end of time when he returns and he separates the sheep from the goats. And this is what his poem says. You were hungry and I was sorry. You were thirsty and I blamed the world. You were a stranger and I pointed you out. You were naked and I turned you in. You were sick and I said a prayer. You were in prison and I wrote a poem. He's writing a poem. I just wonder what you think about that. I've been wondering all week, is that me? Is this us? Is this what we think love is? Uh, G.K. Chesterton famously said, let your religion be less of a theory and more of a love affair. Is my faith a theory? Or is it like a real love affair, you know? I think the hardest part of preparing this sermon this week, I was telling this to my wife, I was just trying to prayerfully think, how, how can I somehow show or prove how hatred is like the act of Cain? Because I think all of us think, I'm not like that. I'm not Cain. But here it is. Verse 17 and 18. If the closure, if I have a closure in my heart to someone in need, and I can help, but I refuse. That's hatred. You can call it what you want, but there it is. It, it's self-preservation at your expense. Right? It's not death to self, is it? So we're told here, you've been loved by Jesus in a death to self kind of way. You know love. You know it, right? You've received love. And you're being told here that if Jesus' love were water, you are not a pond. You are designed by God to be a river of that love, right? Hatred is like a pond. The water sits. It doesn't move. Gross things grow. It doesn't teem with life. But a river teems with life. It's fed by a different source, And that source is never meant to pool up with you. It's meant to continue on towards others. So loving other Christians isn't an add-on that you can take or leave. Loving each other in visible and concrete ways is actually a demonstration to others that you belong to the family. And it's a confirmation to you that you belong to the family. So here's what we've seen so far. Hatred followed all the way through leads to murder like Cain. That's the fruit from the seed. 
Love followed all the way through leads to sacrifice like Jesus. That's the fruit from that seed. So naturally, John goes to the end and he says to us here, well, what is the way of Jesus' people? Verses 19. I don't know what I just did. I'm really sorry. Who's ever running visuals? I ruined it. Here's what we see in 19 through 24. We see the way of Jesus' people. I'm not going there yet. You just go back to the slide. That'd be great. Verses 19 to 21. This is what we see. By this we know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. We have confidence before God. We see here once again, just as many other moments in this letter, the author's wanting us to have a confidence and to be assured or even here that we'd be reassured in verse 19 of who we are. So verse 20 says this, for who, whenever our heart condemns us. So whenever your heart condemns you. You ever been there? Maybe you're there this morning. Maybe you're like me, I've been there this week. We have an, we have a, an inward conviction of our sin. Our heart condemns us. If it's been softened enough, it'll, it'll let you know. Yeah, I'm condemned. I'm condemned. Well, well, how does that give you assurance? We'll keep reading. What does it say? Whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. I mean, think about this. Are you kidding me here? This is glorious. My heart condemns me, but God is greater than my heart that condemns me? What is this saying? It's saying that in my heart condemning me, there is someone that's greater than my heart, that stands above my heart, that says, do away with you, right? So now the one who knows everything, every little thing I've ever done, I've ever hidden, he grants me forgiveness through the atoning work Jesus. This is why Romans 8, chapter 8, verse 1 says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The one who knows every single thing about me still laid down his life for me. Think about that. He still loved me. This, this might actually inform us this morning that maybe finding out new information about someone, especially if it's information that's hard to receive or it's shameful. It shouldn't dictate our death to self kind of love for them. See, we don't surprise God when we sin. He knows everything. We may shock ourselves. We may be shocked by other people, but God is not surprised. So when we condemn ourselves, it doesn't necessarily mean that God is condemning us. Of course, of course, it is right to examine ourselves, to confess our sins and repent, but it's also possible to do too much navel-gazing in your life. So it is right to get our eyes off of ourselves and onto God, and that's what John is doing here. He's saying, look up. Look at the God who overcomes your condemned heart, right? And so when my heart condemns me, my response is to sing as the hymn says, when Satan tempts me to despair, and he tells me of the guilt within. Upward, and I look and I see him there who made an end to all my sin. 
Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is where John begins, right? When he talks about us being defined by love, he's reminding you of God's all-knowing, overcoming love. And so he naturally continues with what? Beloved, those who are loved by God. If our heart does not condemn us, so you've looked up, you've seen that God is greater than your heart. When it's condemned you, you have confidence before God to do what? To do what? To go to God in prayer. Verse 22, what are you asking for? It says, whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his love commands, right? And we do what pleases him. We're pleasing him. So he answers, right? Why would he give you things you ask for? Well, if you love God and you love others in a death-to-self kind of way, I'm sure your prayers will look much different than simply self-centered, self-preservation type prayers, which are normally prayed, if we're just being honest, to accumulate comfort or potentially even independence from having to rely upon God. So it is good and right for God to give to those who are asking in order that they would receive more to give. If I'm asking for things because I'm giving those things, well, God wants to answer those prayers, right? See, if you're keeping his love command and doing what pleases him, then what you're asking for will be something that you are hoping to give. And a generous God loves seeing his children being generous. I mean, I'm a really imperfect dad, but there are, there are things that, there's nothing more precious, I'm just being honest with you, than when I can look at my children and one of them gives something to their sibling and then giving it to them, I know that they are gonna miss out on that. I'm not talking about sharing, okay? I'm not talking about 50-50 splits here. I'm saying someone comes to one of my kids and asks for something and they give it to them knowing they want it, but they give it in order to bless them. That makes my heart sore as a dad. You know, it doesn't happen a lot, but when it does, it's amazing. What does it make me want to do as a dad? It makes me want to give more. That's what I want to see. And so verse 23 gives us the call, the invitation, the command, the way of Jesus' people is to what? To be defined by love. And the order in which we receive this command is really, really significant. Look at it. What does it say? This is the commandment. What is it? that we believe. First, your command is to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. This is uh, strange language, granted. We don't say, I believe in the name of Brian. You know, We just don't use that kind of language. Right? It doesn't make much sense to us. But the name of Jesus is synonymous with the person of Jesus. So to believe in Jesus is to receive his person and is to receive his work. It's to receive him as what? Your master and as your savior. To put it more tangibly, it's to receive his good rule over your life. And it's to trust in his saving action on your behalf. It's to believe that he laid down his life for you. It's to actually receive that love and to submit and trust to him that it is good and right to lay your life down for other people. It's to believe. What's the call? It's to believe. It's first belief because belief in Jesus 
True belief, it changes my whole identity. The Bible tells me I become a new creation when I believe. So it's believing first, and then it's what? It's acting. Right? This is how we become a people defined by love. This isn't a hollow command that you can't obey. You not only have the example of Jesus' love, you not only have the experience of receiving Jesus' love, God has given you himself, verse 24. You have God himself, the spirit abiding in you, which empowers you to obey. And the fruit of your life, which is love, reveals who you are. That's why it says in verse 24, by this we know that he abides in us. Who? The spirit. How do we know he abides in us? Because of the fruit of our lives, which is love. I can put it to you this way. I love maple trees, okay? I don't have one at my new house, but I had one in our old house. It was a humongous maple tree. I loved it because it would produce bright red leaves every fall. It's like my favorite thing ever until the leaves fall and you have to rake it up, but that's another story, okay? So I love maple trees, and I don't have one at our new house. I have all these humongous pine trees that I'm afraid are going to fall over on my house, Okay? But I'm out there blowing pine needles all day yesterday trying to clean off my driveway and such. And I'm sitting there thinking, man, I wish I had one of those maple trees. So what if today I went home and I went to my neighbor's yard because he has an awesome maple tree. And I went and I raked up all of his red maple leaves. You know, I'm trying to love my neighbor or whatever, you know. But then I beg him up and I take him to my house. And I climb up in a pine tree that I have, and I I take off all the pine cones and all the needles, and I take those red maple leaves, and I do an amazing job of gluing, you know, of nailing or whatever it takes, tying, you know, taping those leaves to my pine tree, right? I'm not even good at arts and crafts, but let's just say it was my finest work ever. Okay, let's just say it was amazing to where when you showed up in my house... You were like, "Eh, I kind of see it, you know? Like, it kind of looked like a maple tree. I could feel good for a while, but what's going to happen inevitably? The wind is going to blow. Weather is going to hit. Those leaves are going to fall. And then what's going to happen? Well, the pine needles grow back, right? I I get to hear more pine cones falling onto my roof, you know? That's what, why? Because it's a pine tree. It's not a maple tree, is it? That's what this, that's how this works, Right? It's, it's the fruit of the tree because that's what's being revealed is what it is. It produces pine needles because it's a, it's a pine tree. Do you see this? The fruit of love or hate from my life. It's fruit. It's revealing who I am too. And that tree that is me, if I know love, in the way that Jesus laid down his life for me. And the spirit abides in me. I'm a new tree. And the spirit's continually applying this truth and experience to my life of how I am loved. As my heart condemns me and God overcomes my heart with his grace, that will fuel me to love and to obey, right? That will be the fruit of my life. But if I hold on to hatred... If I refuse to let go of it, if I refuse to receive God's love and abide in it, if I hold on, I'm just just gluing maple leaves. That's all I'm doing. I'm trying to keep up an image that I'm a child of God. 
So you don't get this fruit by trying to glue on the behavior of love. You get it by being a different tree. It's by having a different father. It's by having a better and truer older brother. One who doesn't take life but lays his own down. Guys, in a, in a world like ours, our culture at large doubts more and more the existence of God. And there are some rumors going around that God is love. And the church, the body of Christ, is the place where God has purposed that those rumors are confirmed. That they are no longer rumors. See, back when the church was first birthed, even around the time of this letter, Caesar Hadrian was a Roman emperor. He lived about 117 to 138 AD, or he ruled during that time. This letter was thought to maybe be written in 95 AD to 110, so it's pretty close and overlapping. And this Caesar sent a messenger named Aristides out to investigate this new movement of people that were being labeled Christians, just to find out who they were and what they were up to and to kind of give a report. And we actually have this like written report of Aristides and what he came back and reported to Caesar Hadrian. And this is what he said. What do you think he said? He said, they love one another. And he who has gives to him who has not without boasting. And when they see a stranger, they take him into their own homes and rejoice over him as a very brother. And if there's any among them that is poor and needy, and if they have no spare food, they fast two or three days in order to supply their, the needy their lack of food. Such, O king, is their manner of life, and verily, this is a new people. And there is something divine in their midst. Doesn't this sound like Jesus to you? The way of Jesus? He who had gave to me who had not. I was a stranger. He took me in, called me brother. He who was rich became poor so that we who were poor might become rich. He felt want in order to supply need. Doesn't it sound like Jesus? Is this what the church at large in Gresham is known by in our city? I've been asking this question all week and praying about it. If there are people in Gresham that were to ever hear about GBC and to kind of come and spy it out, you know, who we are and what we're about, would their report be, man, they love each other. This is a new people. There has to be something divine in their midst. The world doesn't love like this. Because the world's way is the way of Cain. And so, guys, the only way this will be a reality in our lives, which is Jesus' purpose for us as a church, is to be in this way, is if we are people who know that we are loved by Jesus in a death-to-self kind of way.
And then as we receive that love, we are a river of that love to one another. We are loved by Jesus to love like Jesus. Yes, we are. Let's all stand together as we pray. Our Heavenly Father, this morning as we go into a time of response of your word, I pray that our hearts would just soar with worship for you and what you've done for us, Lord. Help us to see with fresh eyes and undeaf ears this morning. God, may we hear once again the truth of how you've laid your life down for us and may that fall upon our hearts in a way that would just rid us of any hatred we have. May we be a church who pursues each other, that we pursue reconciliation with one another, Lord, and that we are people who are known by the way that we love each other as a, as a symbol, as, a, as a, an announcement to this world that you are real and you are alive and you live and you dwell in your people. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the way that it works in our life, and I pray that it would bring about the fruit that you desire it to bring. In Christ's name, I ask these things. Amen.